On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 22 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, if you'll follow along now as I begin reading in chapter 2, verse 11, where we read, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The ancient world, much like our modern world, was a world deeply divided. The Greeks considered the rest of the known world to be barbarians, and the Romans, like the Greeks, thought they were superior to every other culture. There was deep division between slaves and freemen, especially between slaves and their owners. Those who were free looked down on slaves as being inferior, slightly above animals. Many slaves looked at their masters with utter contempt and resentment. And then with regard to women, for the most part, women were also looked down on as being inferior. Husbands often treated their wives little better than they did their slaves. When a wife became a Christian, her entire life, outlook, and value system changed, and therefore an unbelieving husband would likely divorce her simply because she had the gall to make such a radical decision without first getting his consent. But none of the divisions in the ancient world was more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. And of course, Gentiles are all non-Jews. There was a deep-seated hostility between Jews and Gentiles, especially on the Jewish side. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. They viewed them as unclean dogs. In fact, Jewish men would rise every morning and pray, Lord, thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell, that God loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made. In fact, a common motto in that day was, the best of the serpents crushed, crush the best of the Gentiles killed. 
It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was immediately carried out. I mean, such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. And even to go to a Gentile house uh, rendered a Jew unclean, and they would, certainly would never, ever eat with a Gentile. So there was a long history of animosity between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the division between them was deep and absolute. And then, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church was born, and suddenly Jewish Christians found themselves thrown together with Gentile believers in this new gospel community called the church. And from the birth of the church to the present, there has been friction between Jewish and Gentile saints. In the book of Acts, we see that Jewish believers resisted evangelizing the Gentiles. And even when God's purpose of saving the Gentiles was accepted, some Jewish believers insisted that Gentile converts must become Jewish proselytes, which meant being circumcised and keeping the law and the law of Moses and all of the ceremonies and feasts. They, they needed to do this, the Jews said, in order to be saved. On the other hand, it appears that just as the Jewish believers were inclined to look down upon their Gentile brothers and sisters, Gentile believers were tempted to look down on the Jews for their unbelief and their rejection of Christ and, and their Messiah. And so there was a very real danger that the early church would split into separate Jewish and Gentile churches, even if it was by a friendly mutual agreement. They, they easily could have rationalized the split by saying, well, you know, we have different customs and preferences as Jews and Gentiles. We Jews like the ceremonies and feasts from our old way of worship. You know, the Gentiles think that all of these things are meaningless rituals, so we're just going to, to separate and, and worship separately. And while Paul doesn't mention in this letter any specific incidents of such divisions, the potential was always there in this mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And so what does he do? Paul reminds the church that each of them Jew and Gentile alike had been reconciled to God. And not only that, in being reconciled to God, they were of necessity reconciled to one another through the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Paul will tell them later in chapter 3, the very mystery of Christ that had been made known to him and been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And all of this, of course, relates to the eternal purpose of God that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. Well, our text in Ephesians 2.11-22 is an extension of Paul's teaching in the first 10 verses of the chapter. Both passages have a similar structure. Each falls into three divisions. The first division focuses on what we were in the past. The second on what Christ has done. And then the third on the goal or result of this work. But although both passages have their similarities, they also have their own distinct emphasis and focus. Verses 1 to 10 deal with the reconciliation which God has brought between himself and individual fallen men, whether Jew or Gentile, through Jesus Christ. Whereas Ephesians 11 to, 11 to 22 deals with the reconciliation which God has accomplished between Jews and Gentiles corporately through the work of Jesus Christ. Or as one man said, the primary orientation of verses 1 to 10 is vertical, and the primary orient, orientation of verses 11 to 22 is horizontal. Discussion of the vertical alienation that existed between unbelievers and God transitions to discussion of the horizontal alienation between Jews and Gentiles and the peace and reconciliation brought about by Christ's sacrificial death. This morning we'll be looking at the first section, verses 11 to 13, 
where Paul, first of all, urges the church to remember their past situation, to remember what they once were. Notice verse 11. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. The first word of verse 11, therefore, refers back to verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. And Paul is saying, in, in light, therefore, or in light of the fact that you have been saved by God's grace through faith to a life of good works, I want you to remember. And we should note that remember is a command. This is not a suggestion. Paul doesn't say, you know, if it may interest you, you know, you might want to try it. Or rather, he commands his Gentile readers to remember. Actually, it's to keep on remembering. And he goes on to specify what is, what is it that we're to remember in, in verse 12. And it's namely, that, namely what we once were apart from Christ. Paul is commanding us to remember our lost, hopeless condition before God saved us by his grace and accepted us into his family with all of its accompanying privileges. And this is something that every believer certainly should do. We should remember what we, what we once were apart from Christ because to do so deepens our appreciation of the love of God and the mercy of God. It makes us more thankful. It makes us more humble. And we will be reminded anew of the wonder of God's grace by which we were saved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Therefore, remember, Paul says. I read about a mother who sent her children out the door every morning saying, remember who you are and whose you are. And that's really what Paul is saying to us here. And this is the very first command that Paul gives in Ephesians, which indicates its significance. And so before he gets to any of the, the practical instruction that will follow, he first commands us, remember. Remember. Because this is how the Christian life is lived. By remembering what God has done for us, and then living in light of those glorious truths. So Paul wants us to remember what we were apart from Christ. Looking back at verse 11, we read, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. So writing to the Ephesian Christians, Paul directs his comments specifically to the Gentile members of the church whom the Jews ridiculed as the uncircumcision. I mean, this was a, this was a racial slur. It, it was a term of derision, a, a very derogatory remark. And by rever referring to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision, the Jews were rejoicing in the Gentiles' ignorance of God. You know, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with the Jews, which he originally gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And, and you're aware of what circumcision is. On the eighth day, the Jews surgically removed the foreskin of every male child's reproductive organ. And God gave circumcision to mark the Israelites as being separate from the world and set apart unto God or as holy to God. But instead, the Jews used it as a mark of superiority and, and contempt for others. But God chose the Jews not only to receive his special blessings, but also to be a channel of those blessings to others. And from the beginning, it was God's plan that through Abraham and his descendants, the, uh, the Jews, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. I mean, Israel had been called by God to be a vessel through which the knowledge of God would be spread to the entire world. But unfortunately, Israel never fulfilled that calling. In fact, far from caring for the spiritual state of the Gentiles, they despised them. They wouldn't even speak with Gentiles and preferred to condemn them rather than witness to them. A rabbinic writer tells of an incident that explains the common Jewish attitude toward Gentiles. 
Let me read it to you. A certain Gentile woman came to Rabbi Eleazar, confessed that she was sinful, and told him that she wanted to become righteous. She wanted to be accepted into the Jewish faith because she had heard that the Jews were near to God. The rabbi is said to have responded, No, you cannot come near. And then he shut the door in her face. Jonah, the the fleeing prophet, typified the common Jewish attitude toward Gentiles. You remember the story of Jonah. God called Jonah to preach repentance to the Ninevites, but instead of speaking to them, he ran from God. He refused to speak to them at the beginning. But when he repented, after God got his attention and he repented, he did preach to the Ninevites, and then he was angry at God because God saved them. That typifies the common Jewish attitude toward Gentiles. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. And like Jonah, they wanted Gentiles to be judged, not forgiven. And by way of application, we would have to say that sadly, some Christians look down on unsaved people, on on irreligious people in, in a very similar way. And they would rather look down upon them and talk about them and condemn them and ignore them rather than witness to them and pray for them that they too might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that kind of attitude today is just as offensive to God as the Jews' attitude was toward the Gentiles. Well, for their part, the Gentiles weren't really wild about the Jews either. And they threw the insult back, calling the Jews the circumcision. You know, proud of of their own Greek culture, the Gentiles looked down on everyone who didn't participate in their way of life. And so the animosity ran both ways. The Jews would refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. The the Gentiles would throw it back in their face. Well, you're the circumcision. Uh, You know, whenever there's division, there's always name-calling, isn't there? And sadly, children learn this at school. And adults see this in politics, in the workplace, in family quarrels. And sadly, sometimes, even even in the church, to our shame. But human beings will divide and fight over practically anything. I mean, for all of our supposed progress in the century since the Apostle Paul, the world still has found no solution for this problem. Well, looking back at the verse, notice what Paul says about circumcision. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision And then Paul says, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And Paul says circumcision was something made in the flesh by hands. And and Paul, is his tone here is one of, of disdain. I mean, Paul takes great exception to the Jews boasting by saying their circumcision was only made in the flesh by hands. In other words, it was merely physical. It was merely external. Though the Jews had the outward sign of God's covenant people, they didn't have the inward reality of true faith in the Lord. You see, circumcision, like all religious traditions and rituals today, has no value whatsoever apart from the inward spiritual reality of faith in God. And in the case of the Jews, physical circumcision was always meant to represent an inward circumcision of the heart. In other words, a new heart, a changed heart. A heart full of inward devotion to God. It was certainly never meant by God to serve as an outward source of of pride and contempt. In fact, Paul says that To have a circumcised flesh and not a circumcised heart was uncircumcision. In other words, it it counted for absolutely nothing. And he addressed this truth in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, he says. Circumcision was had never been a mark of personal relationship to God for Jews or, or for anyone else for that matter. And Paul wants the Gentile believers to remember here their past situation, what they once were apart from Christ. First of all, they were objects of Jewish contempt. That's verse 11. And second, they were absolutely spiritually bankrupt. In verse 12, Paul returns to his uh, command of wanting the Ephesian Gentile believers to remember. And he describes now just how spiritually bankrupt the Gentiles were. Their condition before the cross was one of utter hopelessness and, and despair. And we live in an age of God's blessing on the Gentiles. In fact, our churches today are largely made up of Gentile believers, but this isn't the way it's always been. So Paul reminds the Gentiles now of five facts of their past before God saved them. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So first of all, Paul says, this is what you once were. You were separated from Christ. And this is the most important item in the list, as its position indicates. And so here at the head of the list is the fact that the Gentiles were separated from Christ. In fact, it it might better be translated apart from the Christ. And of course, Christ means the Anointed One or Messiah. And the word translated separated is used in only two other places, in Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21, where it's translated alienated. And it means alienation or estrangement from God. It means no relationship to God or apart from God. And Paul's point is not merely that before becoming Christians, they were without Jesus Christ. I mean, that's obvious. But when speaking of Christ, he means the promise of the Messiah in Israel's scripture. I mean, it was one of the privileges of the people of Israel and one of the great covenant promises that the Messiah would come from the Jewish people. I mean, speaking of the privileges of the Jews, Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. For centuries, the Jews had cherished the hope of the Messiah. Their understanding of of the Messiah's coming and his mission was uh, mostly inadequate, but even in the darkest hours of their history, they never doubted that Messiah would come. And from this expectation, they drew great strength and courage. But unlike the Jews, the Gentiles' religion was totally pagan. They, they neither knew of the Messiah or had any expectation of a Messiah. They, they lacked a Savior. And therefore, they had no messianic hope of a Savior and, and deliverer. Their, their history had no purpose, no plan, and no destiny except the ultimate judgment of God, which they were unaware of. Prior to the gospel, Gentiles were separated from the hope that the Jews had in the coming of the Messiah, a hope of course, that was eventually fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although God had the Gentiles in His eternal sovereign plan to be united with Christ through faith, they had no such relationship as yet. So first of all, Paul says they were separated from Christ. And of course, nothing could be more serious, right? If every spiritual blessing of chapter 1, verses 4 to 12, is available only to those who are in Christ, and if rescue from being dead in trespasses and sins and being children of wrath, children of disobedience, as detailed in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, if that rescue comes only to those who are in Christ, well, then being separated from Christ is man's greatest problem, isn't it? 
And so first of all, Paul calls upon the Gentile believers to remember that at one time they were separated from Christ. They were Christless. But not only that, secondly, they were homeless. Look at verse 12. Paul says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, Gentiles were estranged from the chosen people of God and all the accompanying privileges belonging to those with citizenship in Israel. In the time before Christ came and the gospel spread throughout the world, only the little nation of Israel had the distinction of being the chosen people of God. And God, has made, God had made His chosen people, as one man said, into a theocracy, a nation of whom He Himself was King and Lord. He gave that nation His special blessing, protection, and love. He gave them His covenants, His law, His priesthood, His sacrifices, His promises, and His guidance. And as the psalmist said, God has not dealt thus with any nation. They do not know His rules. And so however great the Greeks and Romans might be, however much power and wealth, learning or glory they might acquire, they were still outside the circle of God's special love and care, and their days were numbered. I mean, at that time in salvation history, to be saved, you had to become an Israelite in accordance with God's plan. You could not enter into God's salvation without entering into God's people. And we see this reality illustrated by the Old Testament story of Ruth and Naomi. After their husbands died, Naomi decided to go back to Israel to live under God's care. And Ruth, her Moabite widowed daughter-in-law, apparently had learned much about Israel's God during her time of marriage. And so when Naomi prepared to leave, Ruth appealed to her saying, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And then she said, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. If you notice how Ruth puts this, uh, in order to say, your God shall be my God, she also had to say, your people shall be my people. She knew that you could not enter into God's salvation without entering into God's people. However, Since the coming of Christ and the good news of the gospel, you don't have to be part of one nation or ethnic group because the gospel is offered freely to all men everywhere. It's offered to those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But when we're saved, God places us in Christ Jesus. So at conversion, we are joined to Christ in one spiritual body. And not only are we joined to Christ, you're also joined to His people. I mean, to be in Christ is to personally and vitally, uh, to be in Christ is to be personally and vitally united to Christ as branches are to the vine and members to the body and thereby also to Christ's people. Because it is impossible to be part of the body without being related to both the head and the members. According to the New Testament, and especially Paul, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, one with him and also one with his people. And so as one commentator wrote, you still cannot be saved without God's people becoming your people. And he continued. He said, countless converts to Christ have learned that you cannot maintain all your old associations when you come to Christ and that you must enter into new ones. Above all, if you find the church a dull, unappealing society for which you have little interest or affection, you should reconsider the reality of your salvation. And then he said this, We are living in a time when the church is held in low esteem, even among Christians. This is, I think, in part an overreaction to the religious formalism of a prior generation and due also to the worldliness of so many professing believers today. Our society is individualistic and consumeristic. So people think of the church in those terms. And Christians have no fear of belittling or dividing the church, even though it is the commonwealth of God's own people. 
Our low view of God's household is evidenced by our church shopping, our church hopping, and for many, church dropping. See, one of the greatest tragedies of of being without Christ is being outside of his people, outside of his church. Lloyd-Jones said the most terrible thing about a man who is not a Christian is is, is that he is outside that circle in which God is peculiarly interested and does not belong to the people of God. So the Gentiles were Christless. And they were homeless. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not at home with the people of God. Now had the Gentiles accepted the true God of Israel, they too could have been part of that blessed nation. But because they rejected God, they forfeited His national blessing. and They had no God-blessed community or kingdom, and they had no divine benefactor. They were outside the circle of those who worshipped God. They were Christless, they were homeless, and third Paul says the Gentiles were friendless. Look back at verse 12. He says that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles were friendless, strangers to the covenants of promise. And the word for strangers carries the idea of being foreign to a thing, of having no share in it. In the Old Testament, God made several covenants with His chosen people. And of course, a divine covenant is an agreement in which God binds Himself to carry out His personal promise to His people to redeem them from sin and to bless them forever. And of course, the supreme covenant of promise was the one given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God established his covenant with Abraham, that that patriarch of the Hebrew people was called the friend of God or God's friend. And as heirs of God's covenant promises, the descendants of Abraham also enjoyed that special friendship with God. Through the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God unfolded this special relationship with the Jewish people. And these covenants included the blessings in favor of God and and the hope of a coming Messiah. But Paul's point is that the Gentiles were strangers to these blessings. They were ignorant of them and they had no share in them. I mean, God's covenants are recorded in His Word, but the Gentiles didn't know or understand God's Word. I mean, just like people today who never come to church. That's why they were ignorant of God's promise. Lloyd-Jones points out that unbelievers today can read their Bible and it doesn't move them. They are strangers. They are like people from another country. They do not understand the language. And that's very accurate. I suppose my question then would be, does that describe any of you? Does that describe any of you? You know, are you a stranger to the promises of the Bible so that it all makes no sense to you and and means nothing to you? If that's the case, then you need to cry out to God that by His Holy Spirit, He will give you eyes to see and a heart to understand and then a desire to obey. Fourth, Paul says the Gentiles were hopeless. Hopeless. He says, having no hope. So they were without hope. And this is the kind of life people live apart from Jesus Christ. They have no hope. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I mean, you may have hopes and aspirations of the things you want to do and things you want to accomplish, but I can tell you this right now. You have no hope of the forgiveness of sin. You have no hope of eternal life. 
Because those things are only found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So you, like these Gentiles, uh, are without hope. You have no hope. When Paul says they have no hope, he doesn't mean that the Gentiles had no aspirations, no desires. I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, doubtless, uh, many Gentiles desired better things. Doubtlessly, there was a, a deep hunger on, on the part of many for spiritual deliverance, but mere desire is not hope. I mean, hope is a blending of desire with certain expectations. And this, the Gentile world, did not have. Because you see, true hope can be based only on a true promise, on confidence in someone who can perform what he promises. Israel was able to have complete hope in God's promises because he had, a very, he had every resource at his disposal and because God cannot lie. I mean, they had God's promises and, and they knew that he was able and trustworthy to fulfill them. They knew that God would deliver on what he said. I mean, the fact that they often failed to hope in those promises wasn't due to anything in God. It was due to their own unfaithfulness. I mean, God's promise to send the Messiah was the hope of Israel. The Gentiles, however, had no such promises and therefore had no ground for hope, at least no hope based on the sure promises of God. And so they had no firm foundation on which to base any hope. They had no hope of a messianic salvation or, or future resurrection. I mean, certainly the tombs of the pharaohs show that they had some hope of an afterlife, but it was an empty hope. I mean, only the Jews had hope in the true and the living God. So Paul says the Gentiles were without hope and having no hope. What a horrible place to be. As one commentator said, the melancholy that had long enshrouded the ancient pagan world had by New Testament times deepened into an unrelieved gloom. Life was so full of trouble, so haunted by black destiny, so brief and uncertain that many people felt that the best thing of all was not to be born and the next best thing was to die. The despair of the ancient Gentile world is aptly described in Matthew Arnold's lines on that hard pagan world disgust and secret loathing fell, deep weariness and sated lust made human life. A hell. Again, what a horrible place to be. I mean, if there is no hope, all is lost. I mean, without hope, there's nothing. Having no idea of a Savior, the Gentiles suffered an epidemic of hopelessness. And the same is true of today's secular culture, which is increasingly overwhelmed by despair. And why do you think we, we've seen such an increase in spousal abuse, child abuse, drug abuse, alcoholism? People are in despair. They are, they are without hope. And this lack of hope relates to our attitude regarding both life and death. I mean, people today lack hope in life, which is why so many lead a, a mindless pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. It's, it's the attitude expressed in 1 Corinthians 15. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And without the God of Israel, none of us can have any real hope that things will be good or, or get better. And if this is true of our life in this world, how much truer is it of any good thing beyond the grave? If secular people have no hope about life, things only get worse when it comes to death. The Gentiles of Paul's day had no hope for life after death, expecting only to lie in the ground. And as one of their philosophers wrote, bereft of life, voiceless as a stone. And the same is true of people in every age. 
The Gentiles were hopeless with no Savior, no home, and no promises. They had no meaningful future because the promises rested with the Jewish Messiah. They couldn't expect their situation to improve either in this life or in the life to come. And they were faced with the same conclusion that Satan faced in Milton's Paradise Lost. Thus repulsed, our final hope is flat despair. Paul says the Gentile believers were Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, and fifth, godless. In the last part of verse 12, Paul says they were without hope without God, excuse me, without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. And this is the reason unbelieving people live and die without hope. And Gentiles live, Paul said, without God in the world. And those may be the saddest words in the Bible. And by this, Paul doesn't mean that they, they had been atheists having no religion and acknowledging no gods at all. No, quite the, quite the contrary. The pagan Gentiles of, of Paul's day believed in not just one god, but many gods. And so this critique would have sounded a bit hollow to their ears. But you see, you can be very religious and not have God. The Gentiles had legions of gods. But none of them were the true and the living God. None of them could save. None of them could give hope in this life or in the life to come. And so it is today, one commentator said, for all who trust the false God of success. As one best-selling novelist confessed, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. The same is true of those who trust the false God of money, which cannot buy joy, peace, or satisfaction. Or the false god of beauty which exacts a tyrannical service. Or the false god of romance which so often fades or betrays. Or the false god of fame, fleeting and unfaithful. Only the true God revealed in his word who saves us through Jesus Christ can give the hope for which we long. Only he can be called my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And Paul says the Gentiles were without God in the world. He's, he's stressing the fact that they had no relationship with, no belief in the true and the living God, the God who created heaven and earth and sent His Son to die on the cross to provide a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. They were ignorant of the true God, regardless of what sort of religious activity they may have been involved in. And their previous situation as Gentiles was utterly bleak and completely devoid of any prospect for God apart from His divine intervention. I mean, without God in the world summarizes the, the situation of the Gentile before Christ's coming, just as Paul's first phrase introduced it. When at the beginning Paul described the Gentiles as being separated from Christ. And here he says they are without God. I mean, God is the source of every good thing, including hope. So if we are without God, we are without everything, absolutely everything, despite any appearances to the contrary. I mean, to have no hope for the future is bad enough. But to have no God in the present, that makes a situation unspeakably tragic. But with Christ, with Christ, we have hope because we have the true and, and saving God who entered the world to conquer sin and death. As Charles Spurgeon sums it up, without Christ, though you be rich as Croesus and famous as Alexander and wise as Socrates, Yet you are naked and poor and miserable, for you lack him by whom are all things and for whom are all things and who himself is all in all.
Paul's goal in the second half of chapter 2 is to encourage the Gentile believers by reminding them that they're not second-class Christians. But in doing so, he doesn't mince words concerning the sinful, hopeless situation that they came from. He doesn't encourage them with the thought that their former paganism, ignorance, and immorality were really no big deal. Neither does he, like so many today, encourage the other Christians to become more like these Gentiles if they'll feel more comfortable in church. (laughs) Rather, Paul flatly tells these believers that they were ignorant, irreligious, and humanly speaking, without hope. They were separated from Christ and without God in the world. That is what they once were. And Paul reminds us of these truths because he wants believers to remember. You know, never forget, he says. You know, never forget what you were before and then what you have now in Jesus Christ. Because of God's grace, you have a Savior. You're a blessed member of the family of God. In Christ, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul's first exhortation in Ephesians is to remember. And verses 11 and 12 give us the negative side of the equation. We're we're to remember what we once were apart from Christ. But now in verse 13, Paul turns to the positive. Just as he had done earlier, Paul indicates a change in the situation as a result of God's intervention. Back in verse 4 of chapter 2, he said, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now in verse 13, he writes, notice, but now, but now, this is what you once were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. But now, I mean, what a wonderful, glorious truth that is. What what wonderful words. But now. We saw the same thing in verse 4. But God. Before the gospel, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, things are different. And I wonder, is there a but now in your life? When you came to realize your your lostness, your utter sinfulness in the sight of a holy God, you came to understand that you were deserving of nothing but His eternal wrath and punishment. But now, but God saved you. And now you belong to Him. Is there a but now in your life? And when God breaks into your life with the gospel, you simply cannot be the same person that you were before because all things become new, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. I mean, the old has passed away, the new has come. Realize, Paul says, what you were without Christ. You You once were far off, he said. Far off was a common Jewish term used in rabbinical writings to describe Gentiles. In other words, those who were far away from the true God. Jews, on the other hand, consider themselves and their converts to be brought near to God because of their covenant relation to Him and the presence of His temple in Jerusalem. But the fact of the matter is that in Christ, every person, Jew or Gentile alike, is brought near to God. And as one man noted, that nearness is not an external, dispensational, national, geographic, or ceremonial nearness, but rather it is a spiritual intimacy of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how did this happen? How is it that Gentiles have been brought near to God? Well, look back at verse 13. Look what Paul says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. 
The blood of Christ. And that is simply biblical shorthand for Christ's substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. And of course, Jesus' blood reminds us of the numerous animal sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant which all foreshadowed the sacrificial death of Christ. And blood also reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. You know, as one hymn says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I mean, sin separates people from God and only Christ's atonement can remove that sin barrier. I mean, sin is that serious. And if God's wrath is to be appeased and, and He is to reconcile sinners to Himself, blood atonement must be made. And so we're not talking about a peripheral issue, are we? No, the cross is central. No, you, you do away with the cross and you do away with Christianity. I remember one time years ago, I believe the, the, the news commentator was Tom Brokaw, I believe. And he was interviewing Bill Hybels. And he asked him, he said, well, you know, I've, I've been through your church here, but I'm paraphrasing. And I don't see a cross anywhere in your church. To which Bill Hybels replied, well, we have a hard time tying up all of Christianity in the cross. If there is no cross, there is no Christianity. The cross is central. Yet tragically, there are many today who don't like all of the, the blood language in the Bible. But blood reminds us of what God has done for us in His great love. Yet there are some who think that the cross is overemphasized. They think evangelicals are too atonement-centered. One man said, It is a mistake to identify the atonement as the central doctrine. Although it is central in Pauline tradition, the first Peter Hebrews, 1 John, and Revelation. But these books in their entirety compose only 39% of the New Testament. Well, I certainly don't agree with his assessment. Do you? <laughs> I mean, even if it is central in 30, 39% of the New Testament, uh, you can't pretend that, it, that it's not important. And still there are others today who think the cross is too violent. One writer said, the church's inability to shake off the great distortion of God contained in the theory of penal substitution with its inbuilt belief in retribution and redemptive power of violence has cost us dearly. You know, they're embarrassed by such a claim of substitution. In recovering the scandal of the cross, Joel Green and, and Mark Baker think the cross is irrelevant. They say, we believe that the popular fascination with and commitment to penal substitutionary atonement has had its ill effects in the life of the church and in the United States and, and has little to offer the global church and mission by way of understanding or embodying the message of Jesus Christ. It has little to offer? What are you kidding me? Seriously? I mean, the fact of the matter is, it has everything to offer. Everything. According to Paul, the cross is the main thing that we have to offer. C.J. Mahaney gets at the importance of the cross in, in a great little book that he wrote called Living the Cross-Centered Life. And he writes, This is what I hold out to my young son as the hope of his life. That Jesus, God's perfect righteous son, died in his place for his sins. Jesus took all the punishment. Jesus received all the wrath as he hung on the cross so people like Chad and his sinful daddy could be completely forgiven. Amen. And this is why the Christian message is called the gospel, the good news. 
And this good news has a horizontal as well as a vertical dimension. Vertically, the gospel of Christ deals with our alienation from God and restores us to His fellowship and friendship. But when the gospel, or better, Christ, who is the gospel, restores us to God's fellowship and friendship, individual believers are united to one another. For as one man said, union with Christ is union with Christ and His body, the church. You cannot be vitally united to Christ and not be vitally united with His body, the church. And this is what Paul is telling the Ephesians in verse 13. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, what overcame the Ephesians' separation from Christ and their alienation from the covenant people of God was the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, God had done something to overcome their separation from Him and, and His people and made the Ephesians fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The something God provided in His grace to bring the Ephesians near was again the blood of Christ. And this is the good news for everyone, regardless of, of who and what you are. By His blood, Christ has opened wide the way to God, the way to salvation. But notice that this is the one and only way by which you may come to God. Paul doesn't say that we may come to God simply by virtue of being made in His image, because mankind is marred and, and shamed by sin. He doesn't say that we may come to God by being a good person. I mean, this is what so many people mainly think today. And it's a fatal, damning tragedy. Because in God's eyes, you're not a good person. And it is only our self-serving, sin-stained perspective that allows us to think this about ourselves. There is no one good, God says. No, not one. Read it for yourself in Romans chapter 3. Paul does not say that you may draw near to God through religion, by being a devout person, by partaking in rituals, or by the sacraments alone. I mean, no mystical experience, however spiritual it may make you feel, will ever overcome the barrier of your sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can reconcile you to God and bring you near. Only the blood of Christ. And Jesus reconciles us to God and, and brings us near to Him, not by good intentions, not by simply telling us that God is love, and not by preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but by dying in our place as a sacrificial atonement for our sin. I mean, this is the great reality that applies to everyone, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, where he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Jesus died as a propitiation by his, by his own blood, turning away God's wrath from all who trust in Him. I mean, people believe in many things. People believe in all kinds of things. But there is only one thing that saves us. Only one thing that will bring us near to God and, and restore us to His love. And that is faith in Christ's sacrificial atoning death for our forgiveness and reconciliation. And you may not be the person that you should be, and you may be weighed down with your sense of unworthiness. But in Christ, in Christ Jesus, God's blessing and love are yours and will remain yours, not because you earned them, but rather because Jesus Christ earned them for you. They were purchased and advanced, as the Apostle Peter wrote, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So you can stop trying to win God's favor. 
And stop fretting about your salvation and rest secure knowing that though you were far away, it is Christ's blood that has brought you, you who were far away near to God. And as a believer, you, you belong to Him. You are secure in Him. And Paul goes on in verse 14 to explain just how the blood of Christ brought the Gentile Ephesians near to God and, and His covenant people, but we'll save that for next week, Lord willing. And so what are, the, what are some practical benefits of obeying Paul's command to remember our desperate, hopeless past in contrast with our glorious present situation of having been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, first of all, remembering what you were before God came to you in grace, you know, realizing what you would be now and what your future destiny would be were it, were it not for God's grace to you in Jesus Christ, stirs up our gratitude to God. Or at least it sure should. And if you're, if you're thankful to God, your heart is going to want to live for Him in light of all that He has done. And this is why believers need the Bible's teaching on sin and judgment, not to, not to put us down. But because if we don't realize what we were and what we deserved, we will never thank and praise God as we should for what we are now and what we have in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we should remember because unlike the Jews and their contempt for the, the hopeless, godless Gentiles, we're to look with mercy upon those who are without hope and without God. We should look at unbelievers not with a condemning spirit, not pointing our fingers, not condemning them. Rather, we should look upon them as Jesus did, as, as lost sheep, sheep without a shepherd. And we should look upon unbelievers this way because we're no better. The only difference between us and the worst unbeliever is the grace of God. I mean, we are no better. We, we are, are simply objects of God's mercy. And so we're to devote ourselves to the greatest of all mercies, a, a living witness to the salvation that God offers to everyone through faith in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we should remember so that we never give in to despair as a Christian. One man said, never let resentment take hold of you when you suffer or have unfulfilled desires. Never let temptation be your master. Never forget the grace of God. Remember what God has already done for you and the great cost it was to himself. And never doubt God's saving love. And in light of what God has done for us, we should live with courage and we should live with resolve and hope and joy, knowing that we are part of a, of a grand design to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end of man, isn't it? To glorify God first and foremost. We're here to live for His glory, not our own. We're here to live for Him, not ourselves. To glorify Him in our lives and to enjoy Him. And so loved ones in closing, remember. Remember who you are. And remember whose you are. I mean, remember and do not forget. Remember where you were without Christ. And then thank and praise Him every day of your life for where you are now in Christ. Amen? We have, I mean, of all people, we have everything to be thankful for. I mean... Every day we, we are doing better than we deserve we, because we know what we deserve, don't we? Nothing but God's wrath and eternal judgment. And there was nothing in us that would have induced God to love us or, or to save us. God just simply chose to love us. Why? Because He chose to love us. And it's because of His great love 
that he saved us. There's nothing greater, is there? And so we have absolutely everything to be thankful for and heaven to look forward to. Isn't that glorious? Man, that should, that should make your day and your week, right? <laughs> we have so much to be thankful for. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set